0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Paige, and our scripture today is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: You may be seated. Let's uh, exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in Matthew. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is here. Right now. Right here. Uh, and as you're turning there i just want to continue this posture of worship um in and through prayer speaking to our father uh in heaven so let's pray to our father in heaven together father we recognize your presence In us right now, with us right now. We recognize your beauty, that you are enthroned upon the praises of thousands and thousands of your saints. God, we admit that you are worthy of it all. You're worthy of our thoughts. of our words, of our actions, of our hearts, of our desires, of our wants, of our inclinations, you alone are worthy. We thank you for this day. Lord, we know that you have made this day. You woke us up. You're giving us Breath in our lungs. And so we want to turn that back to you and we want to praise you for that. Jesus, we know that you are here, that all things are through you, in you, and for you, and you alone, Jesus, deserve the glory. God, you are the gospel, you are the good news. Father, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your desires and not to selfish gain. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we would just behold wondrous truths from your word. Father, we ask that you would take our wandering hearts and unite them to fear your name. And finally, Father, we just pray that you would satisfy us with yourself, with your unfailing love, with your mercy, with your grace. God, satisfy us, we pray. Make everything else dissatisfying. Make it taste bad. Make it look bad. Make it sound bad. God, all we want is to know you. And Spirit, if we don't want to know you, I ask that you would give us the desire to know you. Help us to want to want to know you, Lord. And if we are guilty of filling our hearts with other things that don't satisfy, Father, forgive us. Holy Spirit, give us the comfort that comes with forgiveness. Father, allow us to remove our shame, to put down the fig leaves, and to just stand exposed before you because you are the one that truly knows our hearts and you are the one that deeply and unfailingly loves us. Father, we ask that we would reflect that same forgiveness to each other that as your body we would be a forgiving people we would not hold grudges against one another against siblings, against friends, against family against your body and I pray right now in this room right now in this room that we would be a people who are pure of heart people who are peacemakers people who are merciful, who are poor in spirit who mourn over the sin in this world who hunger that you turn things that are wrong back to right And God, allow us the upside-down kingdom of your heaven, of your presence, of your rule. Allow that upside-down kingdom to just change us. Father, you alone deserve the glory. You alone deserve all of the praise. Spirit, remove lies from our ears and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all this in your Son's name and by the powerful might of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us and who prays for us. And all God's people said. Last week we started the Sermon on the Mount And Jesus starts with this word blessed, and last week we looked at what this word means. What does blessed mean? And it was an interesting definition. I said blessed means happy, and uh, there were a few eyebrows raised, so we're going to dive into that a little bit more this week. What does blessed mean? Well, John Piper in his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, says this, Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. The happiest being in the universe. Have you ever thought about Jesus being the happiest person ever? He gets this from Hebrews 1, which is quoting Psalm 45, so that's like a double quote. It's like, you know, making sure you get your sources straight. Where Jesus is, uh, uh, in Hebrews 1, it says that God the Father has anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness, the oil of happiness. In other words, Jesus reflects, John Piper goes on to say later, Jesus reflects the ultimate happiness, and he even says laughter of God the Father. Tozer says that the most important thing about you is the first thought that comes into your mind when you think of God. You guys often think of God as being happy. You guys often think of God as smiling. That's who he is. That's who he is according to the scriptures. Because when I, when I think of this phrase, Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe, I think, well, yeah, but, right, the yeah, but theology that we guys talk about here. Well, yeah, but Jesus mourned a lot, right? Like, Jesus was sad. He was grieved over the wickedness in the world. He mourned, right? Jesus was angry. Jesus felt anger with his disciples when they didn't get it, like the 500th time, you know what I'm saying? He was angry with the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to get it but didn't get it. He was angry so much so that, if you remember later in Matthew, Jesus made a whip. Uh, He was in the temple, and he was angry, and he said, you have turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves, a den of robbers, and he made a whip you guys know how long it takes to make a whip? Sitting there, contemplating. That's a righteous <coughs> anger. So Jesus was angry. Jesus mourned. Jesus was sad. Right? The most famous two word verse is Jesus wept over Nazareth, or, or, over uh, um, Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem when he was about to go into Jerusalem because he knew the wickedness that was happening. So when I, when I hear this phrase, Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe, I'm like, well, there were a lot of, like, I kind of think of Jesus as more like somber and serious and Morning. So, is that true? Well, it is true because the scripture says it's true. So, if that's the case, then I might have a wrong definition of happy, right? I might have a wrong definition of happy because this word happy doesn't really fit into this. Like, when I think happy, right, I think this shallow, kind of trite, um, thin type of like circumstantial happiness that one moment I'm happy and the next moment I, I'm not happy. So, if, if that's the case, if I have a definition of happy and the scriptures have a definition of happy, who needs to change? I need to change. I need to reorient my definition. I need to sit under the word of God and have it wash over me and actually inform my definition. So look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 again. It's this first word and we translate it blessed. But Last week we said that this word actually just me- it means happy. It means the people who are filled. This word interestingly was used of the Greek gods in the first century Greco-Roman culture. So this word was used of All the Roman gods, all the Greek gods, all the other gods. Why? Because the Greek gods, they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, right? They don't have to work, right? They don't have to do anything. They're just there. Like the Greek gods and the Roman gods, like they just are happy. They're in a state where they don't have to do any. They don't have to exert it. Everything just is, they're well off, right? They're just like, man, these gods, the gods are just like, because I have to get up and work, you know? 9 to 5, sometimes 5 to 5. And all the people who lost an hour of sleep last night said amen. I have to get up at work and I have to provide and I don't, sometimes I don't know where my next meal is coming from. The gods, they're in a happy state of being because they're well off. This word was also used to describe rich and powerful people in the first century. The rich and powerful people are just happy. They're in a blessed state. They're in a happy state. They're in a well-off state. Why? Because they didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. They had slaves to do all their work for them. They just got to reap the benefits of not doing anything. So if you're, in that, if you're not in that state and you look at that state, you're like, man, they just, they've got it. They're blessed. They're happy. They're well off. Good for them. And actually, you and I sometimes define people this same way, right? You ever look at somebody who has a bigger paycheck than you? Oh, man, they've got it. You ever look at somebody who has a better house than you? A spouse, some kids, a job, maybe more obedient kids, and you think, man, they've got it. They're in a happy state. They're in a blessed state. They've made it. They have no concerns. We, we use this word often, and it's this word that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, which is blessed, happy, Content, well-off. And this is why the Beatitudes are so profound. Because who does Jesus say the truly well-off ones are? The, tr- the, the people who are genuinely well-off, blessed, happy, content, are those who are poor in spirit. They have nothing to give. Nobody's asking them their advice on anything. People look over them. They know, people who are poor in spirit know they are in need of urgent redemption. They know that they are fully dependent. People who are poor in spirit know that they are fully dependent upon God and other people. People who are poor in spirit do not depend on their own circumstances and their own situations to provide for themselves. They have to depend on other people. People who are poor in spirit have no exaggerated sense of themselves. No exaggerated sense of themselves. They can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. People who are poor in spirit are patient because they know what it's like to wait for things. People who are poor in spirit have fears that are more realistic and less exaggerated because they know they can survive with great suffering and great want. People who are poor in spirit hear the gospel and it's actually good news to them. Because they have nothing to lose. Rather than if you are not poor in spirit, the gospel is threatening because it requires you to let go of everything. People who are poor in spirit can respond to the call of the gospel with total, total abandonment and little reservation because they have nothing to lose. Remember the crowd that's following Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, look up at chapter 4, verse 24. Sorry, 23. Now Jesus, this is, the set, this is the setting before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, who we know is Emmanuel, God with us, who we know is here to save his people from their sins. He, began to, he was baptized by John the Baptist. He passed the test in the wilderness. Now he's beginning to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing some of the diseases and sicknesses among the people. No, every disease and sickness among the people. Verse 24. News, obviously, began to spread throughout Syria. So, they brought to him, this is the crowd that Jesus starts the kingdom of heaven with, all of those who are afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. This is who Jesus decides to start the kingdom of heaven with. This is the crowd that's in view when Jesus is giving on the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember last week, and this will be up on the screen again just to remind us, the Sermon on the Mount is to the disciples and it's from Jesus. I know, this is very profound. It's to the disciples and it's from Jesus. At this point, there's only four disciples. Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John. Sorry, had to Double check that. They should have known that. Peter, there's only four disciples. The rest of the disciples come in Matthew chapter 10. So there's four disciples, and then who's behind the disciples? This crowd. Well, who's the crowd made out of? The afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. The Sermon on the Mount describes life in the kingdom of heaven. It is to the disciples, which means that if you are a follower of Jesus today, right now, the Sermon on the Mount can, does, and should describe your life. All three chapters, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. The Sermon on the Mount is to us, and it's from Jesus. If we take the Sermon on the Mount away from the person of Jesus who heals your diseases, he meets you where you are. He loves you selflessly and unconditionally. He calls you to himself. He doesn't make you get better first, and then you can follow him. He enters into your pain, into your moment. And he calls you to himself. And he heals you. And he forgives your sins. That's the picture of this Jesus. So when he's saying these things in the Sermon on the Mount that are pretty, it seems like a pretty high bar, remember, it's to disciples, not to non-disciples. It's to Christians, not not to non-Christians. And it's from a heart of love. It's from Jesus. So he says, blessed, happy, well-off, it's better for you to be poor in spirit. For why? The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then last week we looked at verse 4. Happy, blessed, well-off, flourishing are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? Over the state that the world is in. When you see the kingdom of God, you ache because you see the world that you're living in right now is not that. When you see what true peace is in God, you mourn because you see the lack of peace in this world, in your own heart, in your friends' lives, and everybody else's lives. When you see the healing power of God in the kingdom of heaven and you see brokenness, destruction, sickness, and disease all around you, your heart breaks. When you see the love of God, the selflessness of God, you mourn because of the hate that is in your own heart the hate that you see in people all around you within the hearts of individuals, systems, governments, and nations. The mourners, Nicholas Wolsterhoff says this, the mourners are aching visionaries. I love that. Blessed are those who are aching visionaries, people who see what the kingdom of God is like and are mourning because it's not there yet. Why? Because they're actually going to be the ones that are comforted by God in the resurrection. Then the next beatitude, verse 5, Blessed are the humble or the meek. Again, last week we looked at this as, you know, today in Christianity or Christianese or whatever, humble is like a good thing to like strive for. Not so in the first century. If you were humble, you were made fun of. Nobody, this was not an attribute that you desired. It is not having power and choosing not to use it. It's having nothing. It's knowing that you have nothing. This is what Tim Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness, it's, when you don't, it's not that you think less of yourself, it's that you just don't think of yourself. There's a freedom in that. Elizabeth Elliot says that meekness is teachability. Listen to this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. It's the readiness to be shown, which includes the readiness to lay down my fixed notions, my objections, my what ifs and but what abouts, my certainty about the rightness of what I have always done or thought or said, and it's the readiness to be teachable. Morning is, er, I'm sorry, uh, meekness is turning the other cheek. It's looking at Jesus being accused and him being silent and it's following that pattern. These people have what? They inherit the earth. Again, in first century Rome, only the rich and powerful people who were not meek and not humble had any land at all. And Jesus says, actually those who, who know they have nothing in the resurrection, they get the earth and the fullness thereof. Verse six, happy, blessed, content, well-off are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. The well-off people are actually those who long for righteousness and God's ways to happen on earth as much as a starving man longs for food and a woman dying of thirst longs for water. That's those people Are blessed, are happy, are well off, are content. In other words, Jesus' disciples, God's children, Christians, you and I, are people who cannot look at evil and be okay with it. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is looking at the evil in the world and in my heart and refusing to be okay with it, longing for everything that is wrong to be made right. In other words, we can't look at the amount of violence and abuse in in our nation and around the world and be okay with it. We can't look at the, the, the trafficking industry, the sex trafficking industry and be okay with it. We can't look at abuse and be okay with it. We can't look at the abuse and the violence in the entire nations and governments and be okay with it. But those who long for God's will to be done, who feel that gap between what is right now and what should be, those people are gonna be filled. They're gonna be filled to the full. That word filled was used uh, when it was describing f- fattening a calf before the slaughter. Not just filled like, oh, I'm not hungry anymore. Like stuffed. When? Now? Kind of. But not yet. When will we be filled? Well, you're filled because you're Christian now you're following Jesus now but also not yet because you look at the world around you you look at your own heart and there's wickedness and there's evil and there's a lack of righteousness and when you hunger and ache for, for God to make the wrong things right again you will be filled when the Lord returns which brings us finally to today's passage verse 7 says this blessed happy well off content there's an Australian translation of the Bible by the way that says good on ya like, that's a, that's a phrase, you know, good on you. Like, that's what this means. Like, good on you if you're whatever. So, I was not going to say that because I was like, nobody's from Australia, but it worked. So, here we go. Good on you if you're happy are the merciful, verse 7, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the merciful. What is Mercy. The root of this word, I love it. I love the root of this word. The root of this word is the same word as the Hebrew, I won't get into the details, the Hebrew word for womb. In other words, this word for mercy means the exact same feeling, gut feeling, that a mother has for her child. The word, the word is the same, w- womb, it's, it's the same. It's, it's your womb love. It's used in Exodus 34 to describe God's character, the most quoted verse in the Bible, when Moses is like talking to the Lord, and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and loyalty. What's the first thing he chooses to describe himself as? Merciful. To have mercy is to have respect, love, care, and compassion, for somebody else. How do you do that? You have to put yourself in their shoes. To have mercy by the way, this is saying blessed are the merciful not those who show a little bit of mercy here and there. This is a posture of who you are. To have mercy is to stop talking for long enough and listen to somebody else's story. Try to Put yourself in their shoes. See what they're seeing. Hear what they're hearing. And only then can you be able to have mercy, compassion, care, love. Oh my goodness, I did not. That's so hard. I feel that for you. Mercy is weeping with those who weep. Mercy is rejoicing with those who rejoice. Mercy suffers with the sufferer. Mercy assumes the best in somebody instead of the worst in somebody. Mercy understands that there are probably reasons why people lash out in anger instead of just writing them off. Mercy welcomes back the prodigal son who stole everything from you. Mercy moves us to see a person, not a problem. It sees someone in a situation other than ours torn down, broken, untrustworthy, maybe even manipulated, and it moves us to experience their pain and brokenness as our own. And we live in a world that is completely absent of mercy. You mess up, you're gone. You say the wrong thing, say goodbye to your career. You talk back to me, well, I just won't talk to you ever again. When we ignore the needs of others, we actually numb ourselves and we lose our capacity to share and spread happiness, blessedness, contentment, the gospel, which is why Jesus uses this word three times. He uses it here, Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But also twice, Jesus quotes the same verse two times in the rest of Matthew. He quotes this verse from Hosea, Hosea 6 6. Whenever Jesus says anything, it's important to listen to. Whenever Jesus quotes the Old Testament, it's important to listen to. If ever Jesus quotes the old the same Old Testament verse twice in the same book, it's super important. Hosea six, six. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't care about your trite obedience. When your heart is cold and hardened, your right actions mean nothing to me. What I want is mercy. I want my people, Jesus is saying, I want my people to become people who are merciful, that put themselves in the shoes of others, see the needs of others as greater than their own, and understand that. Why? And what's our reward if we become this? We will be what? Shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Have you ever experienced mercy before? Somebody who actually hears you and sees you. Oh man, that's an amazing feeling. I know you've all experienced not feeling and being shown mercy before. Makes you feel about this big. And then you don't want to show mercy to other people because if that didn't happen to you, why you why would you give it to somebody else? When we adopt this posture of mercy, when we enter, when we repent and enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, this is now who you are, so become this thing. And these people are actually the ones who are well off, who are happy, who are content. John Calvin says this, they are blessed, who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also take on other people's to help them in distress, freely to join them in their time of trial and get right into their situation that they may gladly expend themselves on their assistance. Again, this is the very character of God, Exodus 34. God, the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse eight, happy, blessed, good on you, well off, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite beatitude, but I definitely do and it's definitely this one. <laughs> it's like having a favorite kid. It's like I don't have a favorite, but I well, never mind. Um <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I uh, first heard this verse, you know, when I was a, a kid, I, I associated purity with, like, you know, sexual purity. Like, you know, don't lust and, like, all these, like, pure means free from lust. But then, you know, as you get older, and I took a few more science classes, actually, I, I realized that purity is just 100% whatever it is. So, like, pure gold when I was in sci- chemistry. You know, I was learning about gold. Is that where you learn about chemistry? <laughs> or gold? Whatever. Uh, pure gold is what? It's just... Only gold, pure silver, what only so sil- there's nothing else in it. there's no blemishes, no other chemicals, no other metals, no other dirt or dust. it is just what it is that's that's what it means to be pure. So to be pure then in your heart is to be what? just one thing. Okay, what does that mean? Blessed are the the people who have their heart just. One thing, Soren Kierkegaard says this, purity of heart is to will and to desire one thing. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to have your heart bent towards one thing. It means to have your heart not split. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. It means to not have your treasure, uh, it means that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your heart is in heaven with the Lord, your treasure's there. But if your heart is split and it's not pure, then you will have your reward. Purity of heart is that your deepest desires, the core of your being, wants one thing. It's having one goal in life. Think of these few passages of scripture. The psalmist David says this, One thing I ask, and this is what I seek, that I may just look upon God. I just want to know God. Paul says this, one thing, forgetting what lies behe- behind and pressing forward to what is ahead. James 4.8, cleanse your hands, you sinner, purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded, you people who worship your earthly masters and who worship your heavenly masters. You cannot serve two masters. The people who have purity of heart, who their heart is just bent towards God and his will and his reign and his kingdom, they will what? What's the reward? They will see God. When? Now? Later? Yes. You ever meet those people who are maybe they've been walking with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years? and you realize that they look at the world differently than you do, the way they pray, the way they speak to you, the way they know you, the way they know their scriptures, what is that? That's seeing God. That's recognizing that every interaction is spiritual. Every thought we can take captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's years of that. And guess what? That will only continue in the resurrection when we see God face to face. The people who are pure in heart, who their heart is to will one thing, to want one thing, to desire one thing, they are actually well off, they're blessed, they're happy, and they're going to see God. Purity of heart is looking at Jesus, not yourself. Verse nine. Happy, blessed, well off, good on you, are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. Peacekeeping, brushing something under the rug because you don't want to ruffle any feathers. Peacemaking is putting the sword down first, entering into that awkward conversation, and saying, "This is we're not okay. We need to we need to work this out." It's choosing to be nonviolent to yourself, to your family, to your siblings, to your coworkers and to your world. And peacemaking takes a lot of work. A lot of work. Conflict and resentment and holding grudges is actually the easier route. When somebody wrongs you, when you see two other people wronging each other, you know what the easy way out is? Just turn and look the other way. Just ignore it for long enough to where you forget it, and then it's like, you know, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And what's peacemaking? Peacemaking is either in your relationship with another person, you say, okay, you know what? I'm really mad. I'm really discontent. I'm I'm starting to hold bitterness and resentment and I know I'm right but peacemaking is what? I'm going to put the sword down because you often find out that you're not as right as you think you are. That's merciful. That's pure in heart. That's peacemaking. Peacemaking is seeing two individuals fighting, arguing and saying, they'll, they'll figure it. It's not saying they'll figure it out on their own. It's saying, hey, can I hear your side of the story? How can I hear your side of the story? How can we put the needs of others above the needs of our self? And in the end, the scriptures say that who is the ultimate peacemaker? It's Jesus. He himself is our peace. How did he bring peace? He tore down the dividing wall and made the two one. He made made people who were enemies and hostile one. And now us as disciples of Jesus have the same opportunity to do the same. Happy, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God, children of God. And then finally, verse 10. If you are, let me give a little preface here. If you are all those things, poor in spirit, you mourn, you're humble, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You're peacemakers. You will make enemies like that. Oh, well, who gave you the right to be our mediator? Oh, you think you're better than me because you don't say that or you don't do that or oh, you th- oh oh you think that you're gonna be the one to get that promotion? Well, watch this. If you become this type of person, the world will not like you in fact sometimes our the own jesus's own body the church will not like you and he promises that look at verse 10 happy blessed content well off are those who are persecuted not just in general but why because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is there the gospel calls disciples to enter into a dark world and bring light. It does not call disciples to retreat and to just be their own thing and their own community and not engage at all with darkness, but rather engage with like, not disengage with darkness, but rather engage with the darkness in this world. To ignore the call of Jesus to bring light to the darkness means that the darkness goes unchallenged, unchanged, unresisted. To say, oh, well, I mean, one little decision I make about how I talk to this person isn't going to make a difference in the kingdom of heaven is to either lose or resign. And it's to ignore and deliver the message that Jesus brings. The kingdom of heaven is here. Guys, the new order is here. The new reign is here. Jesus brought it in himself. And when we enter into that, the world does not know that, The world does not want to know that and sometimes we don't want to know that and so the result of that is being persecuted because of what we do that is right. When you are merciful in the midst of the world without mercy, when you are pure in heart in a world that serves multiple masters, when you are a peacemaker in a world filled with war, you will bring anger from those in the world. The old age cannot be tolerate the infusion of the new. Where do we see an example of this? The Old Testament. The prophets. Look at verse 11. You are blessed when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Verse 12. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets. In the Old Testament you hear the prophets and they have the word of God and it's like oh people would obviously listen to them. No. Not at all. They were persecuted, they were mocked. Jesus is saying here that your inheritance as a Christian is the same as that of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah. Most of these people ran for their lives. Some of them were killed. All because why? When you enter into darkness with Jesus' light, when you become, as we're gonna see next week, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, this world will not know what to do with you. They will fear you and they will persecute you. I think verse 12 is interesting. Be glad and rejoice. These are the this is the first commandment of Jesus in Matthew. Be glad. Be happy. Rejoice. Be filled with joy. Now, this makes less than 0 sense if you're not a disciple. This makes less than this makes no sense in our world are you, you're telling me that the people who actually are insulted, the people who are slandered about when somebody lies about me, I'm well off I'm blessed, and in fact, not only that I'm supposed to be glad and rejoice in that This reminds me of the story in Acts where Paul and some of the apostles were flogged and they went to prison and then after they were in prison, while they were in prison, in the middle of the night, they were doing what? They were singing hymns and they were praying. That's not of this world, guys. That makes no sense. And yet here it is. This is the life of a disciple. These people are the ones who have a special reward. Verse 12, again, because your reward in in heaven is great. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans. I consider that the present sufferings of this age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, does this incite an escapist mentality? Well, oh, well, I'm just gonna, this life's gonna just be really bad and then I just can't wait till the resurrection. No, Jesus is saying what? These people are actually the well-off ones. They're the happy ones. They're the blessed ones, which leads us back to the quote from the very beginning. Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. When you hear these beatitudes, who do they describe? If these beatitudes are like pieces of a stained glass window, at the end of all of them, when you're putting them together and you back up, who's the stained glass window picture of? Who has, was, is, and has the kingdom of heaven? Who mourned over the state of the world, knowing that it is not as it should be? Who was meek? Who was humble? Who was powerless according to the world's standards? Who was starving and dying of thirst to see God's reign, God's kingdom, happen on earth? Who was merciful, putting himself in the, into other people's shoes, listening to them, caring for them, weeping with them, rejoicing with them? Who was pure in heart? Not only desired to do the will of his father, even who desired to do the will of his father even when facing death. Who was a peacemaker? Who was the ultimate peacemaker? Nonviolent, against war, against anger, stepped into relational chaos and brought peace. Who was persecuted for doing the right thing? Who was persecuted and remained silent when they insulted him, persecuted him, and falsely said every kind of evil against him who was mocked who was beaten who was lied about who was lied to who was rejected who had best friends that ran away from him in his most needed time who was slandered and who lived the most fulfilled happy joy filled content life Jesus. These beatitudes describe Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount describes Jesus. Why? Because it describes what the kingdom of heaven is like, and who is the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus, which means that what? Who's the sermon to? It's to the disciples. When you and I say, when we, we when we repent, and we look at Jesus's beauty, and we look at his wonder, and we look at his majesty, and we say, I'm in. I want that. This now what? It becomes true, possible, and what could be for you and for me. If this sounds impossible, oh, that's just an ideal, that's just for the super Christians. Let me tell you very clearly, it's not. It's for you. This way of living, where you can, be hand, you can just release and let go, and you can empty yourself and let the fullness of God fill your life. That's possible. You want to look persecution in the eye and smile? It's yours. You want to become so meek and so humble that yes, people trample over you, but you have a smile on your face and you know that you're going to inherit the earth, it's yours. You want to become a peacemaker with yourselves, with the community around you, knowing that it's going to be awkward and it's going to be uncomfortable, but actually, when I put the sword down first and I enter into this, it is now a more fulfilling life than anything ever before. You want to be pure in heart, only having one desire in life? Then let me tell you this, don't pursue any of those things. Pursue Jesus. If you try to be pure in heart, you'll never be pure in heart. If you try to be poor in spirit, you'll never be poor in spirit. If you try to do better to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to be meek and humble, and you try to force a smile and a grin it and bear it type of a way, when persecution comes, you have your reward, and that's it. But when you look at the beauty of Jesus, when you see him as a brother, as a friend, as a savior as a Lord, when you see him sitting with you in your moments of darkness, when you see him celebrating with you in your moments of victory, when you can't get enough of him, when you see who he heals, who he touches, who he prays for, then all of this is yours. When you say, I'm I'm releasing, I'm letting go, everything I'm trying to fill my life, done, whatever. When you look at Jesus, you will live. Do you want that life? Do you want that, li- that fulfilling life? Genuinely, I want you to think about that. Do you want that life? Because to those who have a lot to lose, it will cost you a lot. But in order to gain life, you have to lose it. Do you want that steadiness, that purity of heart, that identity as the beloved son of God? If you do, then just look to Jesus. That's it. Look to Jesus and live. And it will lead you to a life of flourishing, of persecution, of fullness, of emptiness, of contentment, of dissatisfaction, and ultimately it will lead you to the resurrection of the dead where all those promises will be fully true God's going to wipe away your tears God's going to fill you with himself God's going to love you God's going to give you the rule and the reign and nowhere does this come to a culmination, culmination more significantly more explicitly more seriously than the cross how did Jesus show his love for us by dying for us. And so at this time, um, we're going to remember Jesus' life for us. We're going to remember these beatitudes. And by the way, it takes a very short amount of time to learn these beatitudes, but it takes an entire lifetime to understand these beatitudes. So let me just encourage you to read these and reread these until it just seeps into your bones.